Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. The Trudeau government has finally unveiled its long-awaited peacekeeping plans, but they're not what many were expecting. Instead of joining a single mission, Canada is committing equipment and soldiers to multiple missions. Defence Minister Harjeet Sajjan kicks off our show defending the new peacekeeping plan and talking to us about what Canada wants to do with ISIS fighters who return to our country. After that, we'll hear from retired Major General Lewis McKenzie, who has commanded two UN peacekeeping missions. He tells us why he's disappointed in the Trudeau government's plan and why he thinks it will have little impact. Five provinces have now unveiled their plans for legal marijuana. The government's point man on pot, Bill Blair, is here later in the show to tell us what he thinks of the provincial plan so far, whether or not Quebec is out of step over home growing, and why the government now says legal sales for marijuana will not be implemented on July 1st. And finally, the fifth round of NAFTA renegotiations have begun in Mexico City, but the question still remains, will NAFTA survive? Aaron Hutchins with McLean's has been diving deep into the possibility of NAFTA's death and joins us to explain what could possibly happen to jobs, businesses, and your grocery bills if NAFTA goes kaput. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. What we will do is step up and make the contributions we are uniquely able to provide. After more than a year of waiting, the Trudeau government has finally unveiled its new peacekeeping plan. At a summit in Vancouver, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau formally announced that Canada will be offering helicopters, transport aircraft, and a 200-strong rapid response team for use in multiple UN peacekeeping missions, not just one. Canada is also offering a total of $21 million to help increase the number of women in peacekeeping roles. It's taking steps to prevent the use of child soldiers. And it is providing dozens of military trainers to help other countries in their peacekeeping roles. Now, it was last year that the Liberals promised to provide the UN with up to 600 troops and 150 police officers. It's not clear where all of these resources will be going since Canada and the U.N. still have to have discussions, but we are expecting answers in about six to nine months. There are many criticisms of this plan, but we'll get to more of those a little bit later in our interview with retired Major General Lewis McKenzie. But to talk now more about the plan, I'm joined on the phone by Defense Minister Harjeet Sajjan who is in Halifax attending the Halifax Security Forum. Thank you very much for joining us. Great, thank you for having me. Okay, so over the last year or so, the general thought was that this peacekeeping mission would be a concentrated effort around one country or one conflict zone, and the government uh, kind of led Canadians to believe that, putting forward this substantial offer of 600 soldiers and 150 police officers. Uh, But now that we've seen the plan, it's being criticized as being watered down. Why did your government decide to spread out its resources over a wider field rather than place them all into a concentrated effort? This is about having a greater impact. Uh, when we were conducting a defense policy review, I mean, we heard consistently that Canadians wanted Canada to uh, re-engage in peace support operations. So we've heard that. But there was also, they wanted us to make sure that we get the um, decision right and actually have, have, have an impact on the ground. We've been very public about this as well in terms of this is not the peacekeeping of the past. Situation has drastically changed. Uh, traditional way of doing peacekeeping um, has uh, worked very well before, but we need to change things so that, um, so that we can have the impact on the ground. And this is not just from a Canadian perspective. This is what we heard from our partners. We heard from the UN, and, and their reports themselves uh, recognize that. So 
I understand that traditionally it was always looked upon as peacekeeping. You pick a spot and you send your troops and um, then you hope for the best and how, see how things go. There's already a lot of troops doing peacekeeping. So what we did was look at where are the gaps, what do we need to do, what are the innovative strategies that are required, and that's what we've delivered on is what the UN requires, uh, smart pledges, where we actually get into a rotational basis of capabilities that only you know some certain nations actually have. And what that allows for is each mission that can have a consistent capability throughout rather than having capabilities pulled and having gaps there. This is about providing missions with the long-term sustainability. The innovative training piece to me is also absolutely critical uh, to this, where we knew that some troop-contributing nations uh, have not been coming to the same standards. So by training uh, potentially nations to go on peacekeeping missions as part of the pre-deployment training, it actually enhances the ability and enhances the mission almost immediately. Now, if the situation is correct, we can actually go on and mentor them as well. Um, but each has to be condition-based, and then you enhance the mission further. Plus, it allows you to have a metric that you can actually work with. Because instead of just doing capacity building um, at the nation level, you're actually doing capacity building while they're going on operations. More importantly, as they rotate through, you training more people. So what we've done here is taken a look at the holistic approach of peace operations. More importantly, we did it in partnership with the UN, and we did a partnership with the nations that are already involved to enhance their abilities. So not just an impact on one mission, but multiple missions. But the Prime Minister himself said he wanted to return Canada to its traditional peacekeeping role, and the tradition was that Canada did a lot of the heavy lifting on that, and this is being criticized as a strategy that avoids a lot of the heavy lifting and let other countries, as you just said, uh, do most of the fighting on the ground there. So um, why take that route? Was there uh, fears of putting Canadian soldiers in harm's way? On the contrary, um, um, every mission um, has, has risk. And if you look at the, uh, the initiatives that we're putting forward, including the smart pledges, uh, our troops, um, they'll be doing um, a tremendous amount of work, everything from our airlift, our, our tactical helicopters, uh, potentially, um, and the Cook Reaction Force, a reinforced company um, that could be utilized uh, as well. So what we're saying is we're providing the capabilities that the UN requires. This is exactly what the Undersecretary Generals needed uh, to make peace operations better. And that's where we're at right now. So this when, when the Prime Minister talked about re-engagement um, of our, uh, into peacekeeping, he also meant about actually having an impact on the ground, modernizing things. Because if we keep doing the same old thing uh, and, and, and try to expect results, well, that's not going to work. We need to change things and uh, reinforce some of the great work that has been done and, and, a, and a methodology where our numbers, our limited numbers uh, that we have, because there's 100,000 peacekeepers already, our contribution out of 600, they can have a tremendous, uh, a tremendous impact. But at the, the, the totality of it, this initiative allows us to actually impact uh, across the board uh, and, more importantly, encourage other nations to look at innovative approaches uh, to peacekeeping as well. How risky of a situation will our rapid response be, team be put into? Well, I mean, this all depends on uh, where they're going, um, but regardless... Anywhere we send our troops, all those risks will be looked at thoroughly, and we will mitigate them with the appropriate training, the appropriate equipment. And General Vance will obviously, as Chief of Defense Staff, set out the rules of engagement. But I can assure you, we will never send our troops to any situation without mitigating the risk, and we will make sure they have all the right equipment and support to carry out the missions. Otherwise, we would not be recommending it. 
troop training, one of the aspects to this, will it be like what we've seen with our mission in Iraq, where our soldiers are going to be in the field with other soldiers doing that training? So as I stated, um, the first step of this is to um, figure out this new initiative, how it, how it would work to, to train a troop-contributing nation uh, to deploy onto a mission. Um, so that's the first step. And if the situation is right, that we will actually provide the mentors on a mission itself. That actually enhances the ability. So, but we will make the, you know, those decisions will be made on a case-by-case basis, looking at where it is, what type of, uh, how the training is going. And if we feel that they can enhance the ability, we will, we will make that decision and put all the, the right um, uh, support behind it. But, but also, now when you wrap everything up also, in terms of preventing of child soldiers with the Vancouver principles, the, the Women Peace um, uh, Security uh, Initiative, what that allows us to do is to have a much more significant impact when you bring this innovative training approach. So what we're trying to do here is be a responsible partner. We did this very well in, in Iraq by being a responsible partner and filling the gaps and putting the right resources in. We've shown that success. And now we need to modernize peacekeeping. And this is Canada's way of contributing and enhancing their ability. There are concerns, though, and, and not questioning the UN's motives at all, but there are concerns about Canada's autonomy when, when we are basically giving the UN a deciding role in where our troops go. Shouldn't Canada have the official word about where our troops go rather than being told, hey, you have to be here, and then we decide sort of what we have to offer, but nonetheless our troops still are committed to going there? No, in fact, actually, the, the, the approach, uh, the next steps of this is actually working with the UN. We will always have the final decision uh, of where our troops go. Um, and, and more importantly, um, operational command, full command is always, um, we, we keep that inherent right, and that's always under our chief of defense staff um, for that. But we will always, uh, if we send our, our, our women and men in uniform to, into any situation, we will make sure that they have the appropriate equipment, mitigate the appropriate risk that they have, their right training otherwise we would not be uh, sending them okay so just just to be clear if the UN says we need you here and the situation is just not appropriate for Canadian troops you you have the opportunity to say no no absolutely we do have um, um, we have the final say on where they go but this is how a partnership works we made these decisions based on uh, our announcement uh, on what was needed and, and and next steps we have some ideas of where those gaps are but we have to we're working with our other uh, partner nations as well uh, who's going to fill uh, the other smart pledges so we'll work with them. Uh, we will assess where Canada can have the best uh, impact, um, and then uh, the military planners will uh, start their work. You've had a year to work this out with the UN to figure out where we can send our troops. Why don't we have these answers now? Shouldn't you have been working with the UN earlier so that we actually knew these things when we when it came time to announce? So. W- what we talk a lot about is the military contribution, um, and those gaps are easily identified. You can take a look at where they're going to go. But if you look at also what we're trying to do, what we're offering up, uh, like we've done at every mission, is a whole of government and what the UN calls an integrated approach. What we want to do is um, enhance, if we offer something up, we're looking at a, compl- uh, a complete package. What type of development work is going to be coming into capacity building, uh, the diplomacy work, how does civil society fit in, in, into this? 
So this is probably the most important uh, aspect of deciding onto a mission. So not only when you provide something, does it have does the mission itself have all the other type of initiatives and resources that actually can move the yardstick forward? So those type of discussions are also that we we need to have, not just strictly the military one, which is very important, because otherwise we're not going to be having the desired impact that we want. Our our members of, of the Canadian Armed Forces will all, will always do tremendous work, but the military buys you. Time buys you time to fix the other issues that need to be done. Uh, everything from diplomacy, the, the governance piece, the development work, allowing civil society to work. Th- that's so critical. So critical to this, and this is why we want to make sure that we do get this right. Because if done right, you can have the desired impact, and plus, it, uh, you can probably uh, reduce or hopefully reduce the length of these conflicts. And uh, finally, I know you have to go, but I just want to squeeze this in because it is a topic of discussion at the Halifax Security Forum where you're calling from um, jihadis, uh, people who go to fight for ISIS and join ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Uh, the UK minister, foreign minister recently said that uh, the only way to deal with them for, for, from his point of view is to kill them. How are we going to deal with them? Will they be arrested on the spot if they try and come back into Canada? Well, first of all, we, the, the security of Canadians in Canada is the number one priority of, of any government. Our defense policy um, is, is states of being strong uh, in Canada and said for a reason, making sure we have all the capabilities necessary for um, Canadian armed forces to support any type of uh, emergency w- within Canada. When you look at the broader sense um, uh, of your question, our Canadian armed forces members will always abide by by uh, the law of armed conflict, um, international laws, in any uh, situation um, that, that they're in. The uh, train, advise, and assist mission that we're, we've conducted in Iraq um, with the Iraqi security forces has uh, gone extremely well. Um, our other security agencies uh, that's under um, uh, Minister Goodell are doing their work to making sure that they have the right intelligence tools to be able to not only track and monitor anybody that, that's coming in. And uh, it's hard, you can't get into hypothetical situations, but we will always enforce the law and keep uh, protection of uh, the security of Can- uh, Canadians as a number one priority. And uh, sorry, just on the advised assist role, are you hoping that the the forces can get back to that role? It's suspended right now. Uh, is Canada doing anything to try and resolve these disputes and problems between the Iraqi government and the Kurdish fighters? Um, I received a, an update from just like uh, my other counterparts as in NATO and at the margins we met as part of the, the wider uh, counter Daesh coalition. Uh, we were told that things are uh, going well, and um, I look forward to getting back to the main mission, which is to make sure that Daesh is completely uh, defeated um, uh, from Iraq, uh, and 95% of the territory has been taken. But we want to make sure that uh, uh, we do everything in our power so that they do not return. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Defense Minister Harjeet Sajjan speaking to us from the Halifax Security Forum about Canada's new peacekeeping plan. Still to come on the show, a retired major general who commanded two UN missions tells us why he's disappointed in this uh, peacekeeping strategy. Bill Blair weighs in on the provincial pot plans and tells us why legal sales of marijuana will not start on July 1st. And we examine the impacts of a possible NAFTA failure. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. 
Coming up on the show, we speak with the Trudeau government's point man on pot about the legalization strategies of the provinces, and later Aaron Hutchins with McLean's is here to discuss how your job or your grocery bill could be affected if NAFTA renegotiations fail. But first... Before the break, we heard from Federal Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, who was speaking with us about Canada's new peacekeeping plan. It involves a commitment to the United Nations of equipment, aircraft, as well as a 200-soldier rapid response unit uh, for multiple peacekeeping missions, not just one conflict zone. There's also a training component and a lot of money to try and help increase the number of women in peacekeeping roles. So we've heard from the government on this. Now we're going to hear from somebody who is not too thrilled with what the government has put forward. Retired Major General Lewis McKenzie has served in multiple UN peacekeeping missions. He actually commanded two of them, one an observer mission in Central America as well as one in Sarajevo. And McKenzie joins me now by phone. Uh, my pleasure. So what is your reaction to the peacekeeping plan unveiled by the Trudeau government? Well, I must say that when I heard the speech, uh, I found it a little irritating because uh, he spent an awful lot of time at the beginning of his presentation explaining to everybody in the audience how peacekeeping has changed, uh, primarily since the end of the Cold War. Everybody in the room absolutely knew that. Everybody in the room, in fact, have had, has had more experience with this new type of so-called peacekeeping, particularly in Africa, than Canada has. So it, it, it got me off to a bad start. As far as the contributions, I'm sure they're welcome, but they were nowhere near what the UN was hoping for by way of more boots on the ground. I, uh, I, I see nothing wrong with uh, sending small training teams uh, to assist in the training of the people doing the heavy lifting, the nations doing the actual fighting in places like Mali and Southern Sudan, CAR, etc. But just as long, and I don't think we're taking this into consideration, they have adequate protection for themselves. We don't put our people in a position where they have to be protected by the very people that presumably are not up to snuff in some areas because we're sending uh, people over to train them. Uh, if we're going to go into Africa in a, in a uh, major way, which I am not, I repeat, I am not recommending, then you would send the balance force, a battalion group of a thousand personnel with all types of arms and support weapons like we did in Afghanistan. So I guess that's a long-winded way to say that I was disappointed uh, with the lack of detail because even government and military officials admit they, do, they don't know where, when, and how subsequent uh, contributions will be made. As far as uh, rapid reaction force, I mean, rapid reaction is an oxymoron in the UN, and we're talking about a rapid reaction force of a mere 200 from a country, Canada, that's probably the farthest away of most countries in the world to where the problem's gonna be. So do you think the sprinkling people through multiple missions and uh, being able to help out with equipment and training and, and other resources uh, through multiple missions is a, is a better strategy than focusing on one specific country or one specific uh, mission? Uh, I prefer the latter. Uh, I'm not going to get the latter. Uh, why, why do you prefer uh, the latter? What, what's the difference between the two How, wh in terms well, of impact on peacekeeping? 
Well, it's the impact on Canada, too. The fact is that we can look after ourselves, we can support ourselves, we trust everybody on our left and our right, and uh, as we're pursuing operations, and we're in a position to do protection missions, which is the primary uh, role that's going on in Africa right now. There are so many innocents that are being slaughtered, uh, particularly in places like southern Sudan, that you want to be able to, to protect individuals. These are not peacekeeping missions because it's grammatically incorrect. Uh, it's not even close to peacekeeping. Uh, there's not even hope for peacekeeping. It's actual combat. And we are assisting those that are doing the heavy lifting, providing the uh, the majority of the uh, of the troops that are doing the fighting. And even the PM mentioned the word accompany. Well, when you're accompanying uh, a force, you know the first thing that goes through your mind is, I guess I'm accompanying them because they're not particularly good. And if they're not particularly good, I'm at risk. So I just hope our folks uh, provide adequate security for our personnel when they're going out on patrol with some of these uh, other nations' troops. Why do you think the government ended up choosing this strategy of multiple missions rather than one single mission commitment? If I was a skeptic, I'd probably anticipate that they think by spreading around and getting a modest recognition in most of the missions that are going on in Africa that it might provide more brownie points. Uh, in the seeking of a seat, uh, what I consider a, a very, very exaggerated uh, importance given to it uh, of a non-voting seat in 2020 when it comes time to select new members to the Security Council. Uh, I think that's a wrong decision. Uh, I think the UN was anticipating more of a commitment. They've actually said so over and over. Naturally, they're going to say they're happy with this. Anybody would be uh, that's receiving this, but maybe not as happy as they would have been with a with a larger uh, commitment. All right, thank you very much. Retired Major General Lewis McKenzie speaking to us about Canada's new peacekeeping role. Still to come on McLean's On the Hill, former police chief turned politician Bill Blair joins us to talk about provincial pot plans and address questions about when it exactly marijuana will become legal in Canada. And later we look at how a failure of NAFTA talks could create economic hell. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, from economic growth to your groceries, we examine the impact of a possible NAFTA failure with Aaron Hutchins of McLean's. But first, this week, two more provinces unveiled their plan to legalize marijuana. Alberta and Quebec introduced draft legislation. As expected, Alberta is looking at an approach that would allow private companies to set up retail stores to sell the drug in the province, although uh, the government there would control the distribution center where everyone would have to buy their weed from if they want to sell it in a retail store, very similar to what they do with alcohol in Alberta. Quebec, on the other hand, taking a much more restrictive approach. They are setting up only 15 government-run stores scattered around the province as well. The government wants to ban people from growing cannabis at home for personal use. The federal legislation allows people to grow up to four plants at home. So what does the federal government think about these provincial plans? 
Well, there's no better person to talk to about that than the point man on pot, Bill Blair, who's the parliamentary secretary to health and justice. He joins me now on the phone from Toronto. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to join you. Do you like what you've seen from the provinces so far? I I know that we haven't seen the plans from every province yet, but five out of the ten provinces, and we're still waiting on the territories, uh, is quite a few. You know, you know, I, we we had hoped that the provinces would would uh, learn and, and accept the recommendations of of the task force. Certainly, the, our task force uh, did some very extensive work, and the recommendations were very, very important to the federal government in in, in the development of our legislation. But we also asked uh, the provinces to look at how we reduce the social and health harms. And one of the things that the task force recommended to both us and the province, provincial and territorial governments, was a, was a very cautious. Um, safe approach to begin very strictly in the regulation of its distribution and consumption so that we might, you know, again, approach this in a very uh, appropriate way. And, and I think what I'm seeing coming from the provinces is that they paid a great deal of attention to that recommendation. And, and so the, rec- the, the regulatory frameworks that they're bringing forward really reflect that advice. What about provinces that have plans that don't always see eye to eye with the federal legislation or aspects of those plans, I should say, don't see eye to eye with the federal legislation? And more specifically, uh, looking at the plan put forward by Quebec this week, uh, they, they have introduced a ban of, be, of people growing marijuana at home, but it's allowed up to four plants under the federal legislation. So what are you going to do about that uh, divide between the two jurisdictions legislation? Well, Cormac, we put in place legislation that made it a criminal offense for people to to personally grow more than four plants anywhere in Canada. But we also asked the provinces to to establish regulation as they saw fit in in order to ensure that that could be done safely. I know each of the provinces has gone out and engaged in a very extensive public consultation. They've also looked at, in, in the context of their own existing regulations with the way in which they, they uh, regulate other substances like tobacco and alcohol. And, what, and, the, and the frameworks that are coming forward from the provinces do, I think, reflect that public consultation where they've, they've each gone out and spoken to their citizens, but also reflect the, their experience, their existing regulations. And, and so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, we, we will, without commenting on specific uh, decisions made at, at the provincial level. I have to say that I'm very grateful for the hard work that they put into this. We know that it was a challenging task. We know the timelines have been tight. They've all told us that. But they, you know, people have rolled up their sleeves. They've gone out and done the thing the right way. I think that in those public consultations, in a very thorough examination of how do we achieve the, the public purposes of protecting our kids, taking this business away from criminals, protecting the health of our citizens. And I think all of the provinces and territories have made their very best effort, and, and we're seeing that reflected in, in the, the very comprehensive frameworks that they're bringing forward. So the federal legislation makes it a criminal offense to grow more than four, but if a provincial regulation comes in, let's say zero, that is not out of bounds technically within the federal well, framework? And, is that what I'm hearing correctly? And, and frankly, I, I, I really don't have uh, sort of an, uh, an opinion on that. But what I can say is we recognize that the provinces, territories, and even municipalities have a responsibility to ensure that whatever is allowed is, can be done safely, can be done in a way which protects the health and safety of their communities and their, and their citizens. And, and so and I have great respect for the authority and the, the appropriate governance of many of these issues. And so, you know, w- with respect to, to the issue of personal cultivation and many other things, such as the age restriction, 
you know, one of the things that I think is really important is that we've asked the provinces to establish an age that it could not be below 18. Many have, have established one in alignment with their existing alcohol uh, regulations, but to enact legislation to enforce a prohibition so that for kids between 12 and the age of majority, the, the, the prohibition will be enforced through provincial legislation so that young persons will not be able to purchase, possess, or consume cannabis. The police can enforce that law. They can seize that cannabis. And, and so it'll be an offense, but it won't be a criminal offense. We don't want to criminalize those kids. And the provinces have taken on that responsibility through their legislation, and that's absolutely the appropriate level of governance in order to enforce the prohibition and, and restrict the access that, that kids have to this drug, but also not to, to saddle them with a, with a criminal record as a result. And, and so we work very closely with our provincial and territorial partners. I think everybody understands, you know, the public purpose aims, the, the social and health harms we're trying to, to, to mitigate and, and eliminate, and, and we're all working hard to, to make that happen. When are you expecting the plans from the other provinces and territories? Well, again, I'm certainly not putting them on a schedule, but we all know that we are working towards a July 2018 implementation. And, and I know everybody's been working very hard. Our senior officials have been working with all the provinces and territories. They meet every three weeks and have been for well over 18 months. And I know everybody has been working very cooperatively and collaboratively, but they all have their own unique perspectives and their jurisdiction have unique requirements. And so people are bringing them forward. But what I've seen right across the country is, is, is people really rolled up their sleeves went and did the work that was required, and they're, and they're coming forward. I think they're coming forward in a timely way. And, you know, when I hear concerns expressed by my former law enforcement colleagues, many of them want and need to understand what those regulatory frameworks from the pro- their provincial authorities will look like, and the sooner they can see them, the, the, the quicker they can prepare to, to be effective in enforcing them. Once again, Quebec calls for the federal government to push back its timeline in terms of legalization. Is there any chance at all that uh, the government will delay this implementation? Cormac, we, we are committed to taking the time to do this right, but we do, we'll, we do not believe that unnecessary delay is appropriate. And because the, the cost of delay, in my opinion, is too high. The current system is failing our communities and our kids. You know, we have the highest rates of cannabis use in, in, in the world, and, and to leave the health and safety of our children in the hands of criminals is simply unacceptable to us. And, and it, as well, I think it offends public sensibility that organized crime will continue to make billions of dollars until we make this change. And so we believe that there is an urgency to, to, to proceeding, but also an urgency to getting it right. And so we'll continue working hard, and we'll continue working with all of our provincial and territorial partners. You know, we, uh, we, we have an implementation date that has been established, and, and that has helped, I think, focus the effort right across the country. People know that's the date we're working towards, and, and so we're going to continue to, to have that, that date in, in order to focus the work that needs to be done. An article from the CBC on that date suggests that it might not be July 1st for when sales of cannabis in Canada become technically legal. Um, is that the case? Might it not be July 1st? What well, are you looking let, at if, if let, not let, July 1st? Let me 1st? tell you, July 1st is, is Canada Day. That's the, date, uh, the nation's birthday. And, and we are not going to have as our date of implementation July 1st. You know, that date, I think, should, is a very special day to all Canadians, and we'll keep it special for that purpose. Um, but, but, but we are aiming for July 2018 for our implementation. Everybody is aware of, of that uh, implementation date, and we're all working hard uh, towards it. And, and, and I, I don't in any way minimize the, the challenge that we face, but I think it's, very, it's, it's critical that we continue to do our very best, make our very best effort to get this thing done.
So, um, if not July 1st, is it July 2nd, July 3rd, or June sometime before July 1st? I'm, I'm confident that an appropriate date of implementation will be established once this legislation has passed through the House of Commons, the Senate, and received royal assent. And so there will, will be a, a date of implementation determined, and it will be, as we have said all along, by July 2018. And is it, uh, is it Cabinet that makes that decision? Uh, on the date after the legislation well, is passed? The, 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 yes, the cabinet will make a decision on, on what the, the appropriate date of implementation is. And, and But, but our, our, our target, which has been articulated for a long period of July 2018. All right, thank you very much, Bill Blair, the Parliamentary Secretary to Justice and Health. Coming up after the break, if NAFTA renegotiations fail, how will your life be impacted? We're joined by Aaron Hutchins of McLean's to look over the different scenarios. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. The fifth round of NAFTA renegotiations have begun in Mexico City. This round will be a little bit different than what we've seen in the past, especially after the fourth round of talks, which ended in a rather tense way. There was a bit of a public spat between the trade ministers from Canada, Mexico and the U.S., all trading jabs with each other. That has led to them saying that they will not be participating in this new round of talks. And uh, this round will be longer than previous ones. And there will be more time in between rounds so that countries can regroup. But one question that's been hanging over the renegotiations is, will NAFTA even survive? And if it doesn't, what happens to Canada? Aaron Hutchins with McLean's has been looking into this and he has a fascinating piece on mcleans.ca looking at what could happen to Canada if there is no NAFTA. Will it be hell or just a bump in the road? Hutchins joins me now to explain the possible impact on jobs, businesses, and even your grocery bills. Aaron, thank you very much for being here. Happy to. Tell me in a nutshell, and then we'll get down to more of the specifics, but in a nutshell, what would happen if NAFTA all of a sudden failed and Trump said, I'm out? Yeah, let's say Trump tweets at 5 a.m. saying, you know what, negotiations are off, this is not working, we're out. What would happen is basically mass confusion on both sides of the border because it couldn't happen for six months. There's a six-month withdrawal kind of a window, kind of like Brexit. Uh, and what would happen is Americans would be debating over whether Trump has the authority to do this, and Canadians would be freaking out wondering what on earth happens to our businesses and can the government actually fix this before that six-month window uh, expires. What happens if... if he does follow through. If he does, let's just hypothetically say Trump does have the power. He signs the orders and says, we're out. And in six months, NAFTA is gone. What happens to the Canadian economy after that? Well, there are multiple answers to that question, because as with anything under the Trump administration, nothing is really all that straightforward. There was a free trade agreement between Canada and USA before uh, NAFTA took into effect. It was the Canada-US free trade agreement. If that were to take effect, there would be still free trade uh, between America and Canada, and we'd enjoy tariff-free trade almost as though, uh, in, in many regards, it'd be as though nothing has changed. But at the same time, no one's actually sure if that old free trade agreement kicks in automatically or if Trump himself would say, hey, I want this old 
trade agreement to take place, and he has to kind of give his word saying, hey, this is going to happen. Because it was suspended, right? It wasn't ripped up. It wasn't um, sort of kept in play. It was just, it's sort of left in limbo, right? That's exactly right. It was just left in limbo. It was suspended because we made a new free trade agreement, and it's been just collecting dust for all these years. Now, if it went back to that free trade agreement, some trade lawyers have been dusting off the, the books in recent, uh, recent months. And uh, while there would be some benefits from having uh, a free trade deal, there's a lot of parts that really uh, leave more, uh, uh, some parts that are really kind of more curious about what would happen. And what I mean by that is one part in the current NAFTA negotiations is the uh, Chapter 19, I guess, the, the, the third-party arbitration system that kind of handles disputes. Now, oh, America wants to get rid of that in NAFTA negotiations, and Canada has stood firm saying that's our red line. We're not going to lose that. Well, if we go back to the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement that's been suspended, that one actually had a sunset clause of five years. So it's very possible if America wanted to, they could just say, hey, we regard this Chapter 19 equivalent as, uh, as finished. And all of a sudden, that red line that uh, Canada tried so firm to, uh, tried to stand firm on no longer exists. Now, on the second hand, if the Trump could also just say, I'm out of this free trade agreement as well, the, the suspended one, well, then what happens? Canada is uh, part of the World Trade Organization, as is USA, and uh, all of a sudden we'd be subject to the tariffs. Now, what would happen is economists have looked at this, looked at this and said there was like a 3.5% tariff. You know, that would probably drop our GDP by about half a percentage point. So it's nothing crazy. But as we know with Trump, you know, you can put tariffs on anything from the Bombardier ones. You never know what kind of tariffs he's going to do for individual industries. And if there's no dispute mechanism, then really the, who knows what's stopping him. And we, we've seen that with softwood lumber with, uh, you know, 20% tariffs and, and other issues like that where um, the asks have been quite substantial. Exactly. And some economists have told me they know this is not an absolute disaster, free trade, or even if there's no free trade deal, it's not as though all of a sudden we stop trading with America. Uh, China, we don't have a free trade deal with them. They're still our second biggest trading partner. So there's still trade happening back and forth. Um, so it wouldn't be as though our economy would suddenly collapse. However, there would be industries that would be largely affected by this. And what I, for example, the uh, uh, the auto manufacturing sector would probably be the hardest hit because the supply chain is just so integrated between Canada and Mexico and the United States that if we're to lose all that and then go to the World Trade Organization where Canada doesn't have the advantages of this kind of great free trade access to America, well, all of a sudden we're not as, uh, n- not as luxurious as a place for companies to invest. And one economist told me, he goes, you know, if we lose NAFTA, it may not be the absolute end of the world for um, a lot of industries, but she says it's hard to foresee that the auto manufacturing sector would exist in a, a couple of years without NAFTA existing. And uh, we, even if we go back to the Canada-U.S. trade deal as it was before NAFTA, there are a lo- there's a lot of uncertainty for something like the auto sector because like rules of origin, let's say, there are a lot of equipment parts that are named in those trade deals. It goes through a list as to what qualifies and what doesn't. And uh, I'm sure back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, cassette tape players were the new technology inside cars. Now we've got GPS and Wi-Fi and all these other bells and whistles that uh, you couldn't have conceived back then. 
That's exactly it. Now, if we were to lose NAFTA, then we'd have to essentially renegotiate the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement, and there's a whole bunch of uncertainties in there. And I mean, I haven't read the entire document, and I'm sure a lot of people, once Trump does that tweet saying I'm out, there'll be a, Trudeau and his government will be scrambling to one half try to save NAFTA, and there'll be another group of people saying, "What on earth is our fallback plan?" So we know that there's going to be a big impact on the economy. We know that certain sectors are going to be hit hard. It may not be the end of the world, but it's going to be much more difficult for Canada in general. Uh, Do we have any numbers at all in terms of jobs? How many jobs could be impacted should Canada lose free trade with the United States? Well, it's tough to give a number exactly. What we do know is that uh, between 1993 and 2008, uh, in Canada, NAFTA created about 4 million jobs. Now, that doesn't mean without NAFTA that 4 million jobs aren't going to cease to exist. But you're looking at about, I'd say, tens of thousands of jobs would be at risk just because supply chains are torn apart and then there would be the retaliatory protectionist measures that would kind of just crimp growth in both economies, both countries. And what what will this all mean for, for currency? Um, you know, it's it's probably going to drag the loony down a little bit, I imagine. Well, there's no doubt about that. Once this happens, the one thing that the market hates more than anything is uncertainty. And when the six months kind of kick in, people are going to be wondering, what's going to happen to my business in six months? So will there be tariffs? Naturally, from all the confusion, the loony will drop. Now, some would contend that actually be fine for uh, you know for Canada's you know exports because all of a sudden we're uh, a bit more with with lower loony. All of a sudden we're a bit cheaper, and that kind of might offset some of it. And that might be true to some extent, but it could be in such a freefall that no one really gets too uh, you know too excited about saying, "Hey, this is seeing the loony drop by a significant amount." Is not really well. This is going to be good for our exports, everyone. We're doing okay. And at the same time. That just makes things harder on, on, on imports. So all of a sudden, for, for people like you and me, uh, it's tough to talk about how great it is for the industry when suddenly with tariffs are, our grocery bills suddenly getting more expensive and cars are getting more expensive. Yeah, and how much could our goods go up in price because of something like NAFTA? How dependent are we on getting stuff from the United States that we, we can't produce domestically? That's a very good question. Well, in the in the wintertime, most of our fruits and vegetables aren't coming from Canada because we just don't have the weather for it. So you'll definitely notice it mostly in the, in the grocery store. Again, in the uh, when you're trying to buy a car, that's uh, another place where the everything is so uh, so integrated. How much more is your grocery bill going to cost? Not sure, but there's uh, it's definitely going to go up. How much more is your car going to cost? Who knows? But it will, will certainly go up. I want to bring this conversation full circle before we end here, Aaron, and just reiterate again the likelihood or plausibility that NAFTA could be torn up. Um, I think a lot of people at the start thought that President Trump's rhetoric on this was just that, you know, a negotiating tactic. Um, Have things changed? Do people think that, uh, no, he's darn serious about this now? You know, when when he started talking about, you know, killing NAFTA and calling it the the worst trade deal in history, everyone just thought he was just being the art of the deal and just saying that there's no way this could happen. And I talked with academics, uh, economists, trade lawyers, and not one of them think NAFTA will cease to exist. And the reason is they're saying either Trump is bluffing or they'll come to some sort of concession, or even if the six-month notice period is triggered, then Canada will have to. In some way, they'll just have to come up with something just to save face. That's what they were saying a couple of weeks ago. But one person who doesn't think that 
Trump is bluffing as a person who has uh, experience negotiating free trade deals quite well as a former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He had, uh, in that memo that was leaked uh, just last month, he said that I believe President Trump's threat to terminate NAFTA is not a bluff, and I believe this threat is real. And as the, each round of negotiations go by, every week, some people are wondering, okay, maybe it could, maybe it could. So it's gone from there's no chance to every week you're just starting to get a little bit more uncomfortable thinking, yeah, this could be a reality. All right. Thank you very much. Aaron Hutchins of McLean's Magazine speaking to us about the different scenarios that Canada could face should NAFTA renegotiations fail. If you want to read his piece, check it out on mcleans.ca. Well, that's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.